Thank you for downloading this Mass Device radio podcast. In this 2012 interview recorded at our second annual Mass Device Big 100 Roundtable West, we sat down with David Pyatt, CEO of medical aesthetics giant Allergan. I hope you enjoy this interview, and thank you for downloading this Mass Device radio podcast. I was watching TV the other day, and I heard Tim Cook, who's the new CEO of Apple, and he said something I thought was really interesting. Um, he said, our role in life is to give you something you didn't know you wanted, and then once you get it, you can't imagine your life without it. So I'd like to ask you what you think Allergan's role is. Well, you probably very quickly work out that I'm not the standard pharma or device CEO that will give you the whole usual spiel about meeting unmet patient needs, and obviously we do that. And I find those kinds of approaches just so gray and whitewashed that it could be one of 100 companies. And because I believe in differentiation of products and unique selling proposition, you can imagine why. I rebel against that. And I think if we go to the examples of humbly, obviously, Apple's super successful company, and I must admit, the day I heard about the iPad, I thought that sounds like it was invented by a committee. It's neither a PDA nor a PC, so what on earth is that? And yeah. guess what I got sitting in my car out there, although I'm still a dinosaur with my BlackBerry because I got used to the <laughs> thumbs. But let me link it back to Allergan in a very sure. small way. And I think it's all about spotting where there's an opportunity that others haven't seen. And then, of course, at a certain point, you've got to go and jump off the cliff. Hopefully, it's a little cliff to start with to make sure you don't uh, crush yourself when you land on the beach. Mm-hmm. And so I suppose the most famous example for us would be the one you started with, Botox. If I wasn't Scottish, I'd probably go and spend the money on the research, and I think probably it is the most uh, famous pharmaceutical brand in America. I think we've run Viagra out of town, Uh, not just out of Newport Beach, but New York as well, given they're from New York. Um, And really, you know, when I started, it was a very, very small product. It was 80 million worldwide for all uses, of which the now famous cosmetic or aesthetic part was probably 30 million, something of that order. And uh, very soon, Botox as a brand will be over 2 billion, Mm -hmm. of which the cosmetic side is just under a billion. But it's just literally the months you can count till it will cross the billion as Botox cosmetic. Is the goal, though, to get people to the point where once they've experienced the products that you create that, they, that they'll never go back? Is that part of the, the magic of, of, of it? Well, I think it's ended up that way, but it would, of course, be uh, totally untruthful to say it was all planned. I believe that all innovation is very difficult, and even as much as you think you realize there's a great idea, you're just on the first chapter, and if you take the wrong fork in the road at that time, you can turn a really great idea into nothing. So there's multiple hurdles. And, you know, if I go back to what has happened to occur is, you know, somewhere we've just been very fortunate that most of our products last for whatever, four months, a year, whatever. And and it's very clear, not just for the ladies, but even the men in the room. We are going to get to you, by the way. Watch out. (laughs) 
Very good. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, but, you know, the, the idea of, for anybody of being, going back to being old and wrinkly again really isn't a really wonderful proposition. And we tested that during the recession. I can say it really worked, right? right. So it's about 90-10, though, still women to men? Is uh, probably fractionally over in the United States, probably 87-13, somewhere in, in that zone. That's really interesting, though. I mean, did you, did you think when you started this that people would just, like this gentleman did, he stood up and said, hey, I use it. Is that the, ma- I mean? No, I think that's going to, like all products that gradually go mainstream, mm-hmm it will become socially acceptable and probably the only country in the world that I know that literally patients won't even tell their sister is probably India and Mm -hmm. that one kind of beat me because I thought I actually understood India Mm. because most of you don't know but actually I'm from India but it's just not immediately obvious right (laughs) and I can do the you know so Let's talk a little bit. You've been at Allergan now for 15 years, right? Mm-hmm. You've increased sales fivefold. You created. You, you said one of the most recognizable pharmaceutical brands, but I would say it's one of the most recognizable brands in the world. A lot of CEOs talk to me about this is a really tough job, and it's full body. It's 24/7. You know what drives you to continue to stay? You know what is what is keeping you every day saying, "What's next?" Well, I quite like the blog you put up because it had an easy way to remember it. You know, if you remember one letter, it's three M's, right? Yeah. So marketer, mountaineer, and masochist, and they yeah. all kind of go together, <laughs> right? So, you know, the old story, though, is if you're having fun, time flies by. Yeah. And you can say, really, when I look back across the years, there have been probably very few times that were short-lived that weren't a lot of fun. And, you know, that. You know, you need a challenge sometimes to turn another corner and, and really take a big risk on the next big idea or the next big product. And then the second part is being surrounded with great colleagues, working with great customers, in this case, the physicians, the surgeons. And finally, people being very satisfied with the end result of the product. And finally, I like to say as a Scotsman, and they don't pay too bad either. <laughs> I read once that you admitted that you were very, very competitive, and I wonder how much your competitive streak plays into this, though, is, and how you imbue that in your people without, well, how do you imbue that in your people? How do you make sure that they have the same drive to win every day as you do? Well, I think the happiest circumstance, and there's several ex-Allergan people in the room, some who have actually worked at Allergan long before me, one of the panelists, in fact, following me. If you look at the history of Allergan, it was always a very entrepreneurial company. And I think, you know, I put a lot of credit to the door of our founder, Gavin Herbert, and for most of people in the room that live either in Orange County or Southern California, you know, he lives in Nixon's old place, Casa Pacifica. Mm -hmm. And he ran the company for over 40 years, and he left a huge mark. I think the greatest fact I would give about him in terms of his business prowess, a number of years ago, so the data will be outmoded, he said to me quietly, he said, you know, of various people that have worked for me, it actually now adds up to 50 people who went on to be CEOs of other companies. And I think that is a huge recognition of what he created. And my job actually was to make sure that fire 
right. was kept alive. So, uh, so how many CEOs have you created then? Oh, far too few. Uh, I wouldn't <laughs> even know. I, I wouldn't even try and compete with Mr. Hubbard. <laughs> so you told me everybody asks you about the economy and you just you hate talking about it. But you told me recently also that basically innovation trumps headwinds. Why don't you want to talk about the economy when you, when you come on panels? What, what, do you, what do you think about that? I'd say it was the best thing I ever learned at business school. It was one of the last classes I did. And we had an extremely good strategy professor who said, when management talks about the economy, it's actually an excuse. Because how often when things are really going well in the economy do managers say to you, well, you know, my sales are up 20%. Uh, because of the economy. <laughs> and when it comes to bonus time, would you kindly remember that, right? <laughs> they use the economy the other way around. So I'm very skeptical about that. Now, clearly, you know, if you're running a company the size of GE or Walmart, I, w- I would subscribe to that. But if you're running a company, even of our midsize, then right. I think it's just an excuse. And I think the real important leave behind is that innovation will always beat the economy. There's always a need for new things. <laughs> And really what helped us through the last few years is just in a huge number of FDA approvals as well as approvals around the world. We had, in fact, in 2010 and 11, no less than seven FDA approvals, right. which for those of us that work in pharma or device, know that kind of keeps the CEO out of trouble for a couple of years, right? right? Just because of the cycle of how long it takes to get a product from approval to peak. But you've been increasing your R&D budget all through the you know, economic downturn and all that. So that's, that's your philosophy, though, right, to keep pushing yeah, it into Yeah, absolutely. The so although we clearly have provided results not only to our employees but especially our shareholders, at the same time, we were able to increase in the last 15 years the R&D budget from less than $100 million to the coming year will be over $1 billion. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in this day and age, whether it's pharma, and I see it day and day also for device, FDA in particular is raising the bar. And I don't think that's helpful for innovation. And unfortunately, it will favor the larger companies that can afford not only the money, but have the intellectual and technological breadth of experience to break through all these hurdles. So unfortunately... You've got to spend a lot of money to be successful. Right. How about in terms of some of the sales processes that you guys have pioneered? Traditionally, you know, you've done a lot of working with your physician clients, partnership, practice building. Right now, it seems like there's more government intervention trying to get between physicians and, and companies here. Uh, what do you see right now as the biggest impediment to continuing this on? And do you think that if ultimately if this access block grows, is it going to impact your business negatively? Well, I think, first of all, there's the two different sides. And if I maybe even slightly oversimplify, on the aesthetic or self-pay side, what we've been able to do is find a blend in our sales and marketing mix of not only selling to the physician, but selling all the way through to the end user. And Mm -hmm. that really entails taking the same tools that one would use if one worked at a P&G or a Unilever or a Nestle in terms of consumer promotions, consumer databases, publicity, meaning DTC, 
public relations uh, resources. Now, switching to the other side, and I'll answer the question. On the reimbursed side, clearly, if we speak of the United States, uh, the role of the intermediary managed care, or whether it be the Medicare carrier, or in future, the health insurance company that is the agent of the health care exchange, clearly is going to put in greater and greater blocks in terms of what products they will basically make available to their patients and enrollees. And I think what I see there is two things. One is clearly an ever higher demand on why your technology is better than the other companies or number two, three, four, five. And then tandem, uh, in many, many markets, of course, uh, products may have minor edges on each other, but they're broadly all good products. Then it's a matter of scale. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's, in that respect, no difference than the grocery business. I hate to say lowbrow for the group here. Mm -hmm. When you think about how do you get on the shelf? And clearly, if you're brand number four or five, whether you're selling to Walmart or Kroger or Vons or whoever it is, if you don't have scale, you will pay a huge margin or huge discounts, whichever way it's calculated. Whereas if you have scale, you can get on the shelf because of who you are. Right. And I think it will be no different with reimbursed pharmaceuticals and devices. Let's go to one of those products that... Right now, you're looking to, I mean, you Elegant invested a lot into the lap band, but it's clear right from right now you're, you're moving on from that business or you're publicly saying you're moving on. What's, what's changed in your mind on this product? Well, you know, clearly when one steps back, there is a huge need for the product. So this is lap band, which is indicated now all the way down to 30 body mass index. So this would be somebody at... Uh, Brian and my height would probably weigh probably about 210 pounds up. And historically, it was even a higher body mass index for people that would weigh of the order of, for our height, of call it 260, 270 pounds up. So people who are really severely obese. Now, clearly this group of people, the number isn't declining, very sadly. So the need is clearly there. So now it comes to the issue of reimbursement. In fact, the very last one we addressed. And even if you're so fortunate as to have health insurance, which of course isn't everybody until the Affordable Care Act comes into place, even then you're looking at a copay of somewhere between two and a half and four and a half thousand dollars. So clearly for people who are in those circumstances, that is a massive outlay. And what we learned was in the past, pre-recession, we thought about a third of that business was what we called cash pay. With hindsight, it was actually credit card pay. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine what happened when the recession occurred. And basically, that funding source has gone close to zero post the, I'll call it the 2009 recession. But when you look at it on a macro level, it just... I mean, it's obviously a product that's, that's a problem that's not going away. Why aren't people willing to put $4,000 on their credit card to not be morbidly obese? I think basically they literally can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at health insurance companies, I'll give you another very startling fact. We did a 
a pretty long-range, expensive study over a five-year period measuring the costs of obesity in a stratified group, 35 body mass index and upwards. And particularly, we looked at the group with type 2 diabetes, which is the most common comorbidity of massive overweight. And when we looked at this, not from a quality of life standpoint, which is normal for most pharmaceuticals and devices, purely economics, just Mm -hmm. pure cold dollars. For investing a complete cost of, and we put in a very high number, $21,000 for the operation, and that probably is more than the average, but when I'm talking payback, you'll see why it's better to put in a, a high number to make your answer worse. The payback was 2.3 years. So you'd think, going to health insurance companies around the United States, people would be signing up to say, how do I get my enrollees onto this program? I'd say, any CEO in this room, if I said, here, I've got an investment with a very high probability of a 2.3-year return, assuming you have cash or an ability to borrow the cash, you'd be signing up right here. And why does it it not work? Mm -hmm. Because of the very disturbing other factor of commercial insurance is called the insurance churn. Mm -hmm. In fact, the average time for any enrollee to be in one managed care plan in the United States is less than three years. And so the fear of the insurer is that if I pay for hypothetically yours, Mm -hmm. the guy over here is getting all the benefit on the back end. So very sad, but too difficult to crack. And I'll leave this up to somebody else one day. Good thing I'm not 210 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) We were hoping the dinner was going to be really good. (laughs) No, but I'm kind of driving at this question here. I I have this theory, and I don't know, maybe it's totally off, is, is that... You, you sort of uncovered something deeper in the human condition about people's, how they view their health. Do you ever feel that you have some insight into the human condition, maybe because of the products that you're involved in? Well, I wouldn't say that one normally has a unique ability to have an insight, but certainly by doing a lot of homework and then talking to a lot of the experts in a given field, whether they be physicians or surgeons, so it cuts across device and pharma, I would recommend people spend a lot of time really understanding what the practitioner thinks and what they do and what they would consider as a, let's call it an enhancement or Mm -hmm. an advantage or benefit to be. That normally gets you off to the right direction at least. After that real blindingly different Innovation, that's where it gets tough. And then you're right back to uh, Apple and iPads and where people go, that doesn't sound like a good idea. And luckily, Steve Jobs was around, right? What do you... At the end of the day, though, who, who, who do you think of as your primary customer? Who, who do you need to satisfy? Is it the physician or is it the, the consumer? I think the, the answer, if you gave me a forced choice would very much depend on the individual product. I think the more consumer and the more permanent the treatment becomes, the more the, the patient is really, or the consumer, in a way, the way that I find myself using the word patient, but it's really wrong. It's the consumer is really, really important because 
as we know as marketers, just to sell something once or twice, uh, that's a problem over mm -hmm. time if you're having to spend huge sums of marketing to find somebody new. Whereas if you can have a consumer ideally for life, that is a great prospect. Mm -hmm. And of course, then you want to keep that consumer very, very happy. And clearly our strategy has been, and how do you broaden the offering to that individual consumer? So a great example of how we've done that beyond the suite of products is that we now have well over a million names of consumers who have opted in to wishing to receive information from Allergan, whether it be Botox or Juvederm or whatever. Mm -hmm. And clearly, once you're in that particular target zone, your hypothetical interest has to be pretty high in what the next one is. And then whether you actually choose or not, well, I'd much rather that than just going through yellow pages, right? Right. Even selecting just female names, that would be a, a real rifle shot kind of, or buckshot type of approach. Last question. What do you think you guys are doing right that perhaps the rest, in the medical aesthetics world, that perhaps the rest of the medical device industry is missing? Well, I'd be loath to say others don't do things that are appropriate or smart because mm -hmm. I think everybody has a rationale. I think competition's much tougher than that. So it's not necessarily about the rights and the wrongs. It's much more about how do we do something even better than anybody else around and ideally always be the pioneer. And I think it starts with product. In our case, if we take, say, Juvederm, we were the first company to put the anesthetic into the product, lidocaine. And I always like to joke, mm -hmm. given I used to live in Germany and Switzerland, so you like the treatment with the pain or without the pain? <laughs> so, um, hello, you know, if I get a product manager saying, you know, that takes a three-month market research project, I go, are you sure? <laughs> Maybe you need to go and work somewhere else, right? But, but on a serious basis, innovation or, or another one would be the first really great volumizing product. Latisse, just waking up to the fact this product had a great side effect from a glaucoma drug. And we did the tests, and it really works. So you just keep going down, and you have to listen loudly. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we made the joke that I kind of hope that Latisse works up here. And I say to my head of dermatology, I go, Frederick, I can't wait forever. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. And those of you that are too far gone, the day that we can make dead things alive, that's a hell of a drug. <laughs> Not to be used on your mother-in-law for the males in the room, you know? <laughs> Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have tonight. But uh, <laughs> it works, though, right? This, no? We hope so. I'm going to hold you to that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I Great. really appreciate it. So thank thanks you very much.